welcome. Good morning, everybody, to Choose Inclusion. So glad to have everybody back today. And uh, as always, I'm thrilled to have my co-host, uh, Miss Nina uh, Ubaldo. Good morning. Morning, everyone, or Hi. afternoon, or wherever you happen to be when you're listening to this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Great. Hello. <laughs> yeah. And this morning, uh, team, you guys know what an honor we we have a we have somebody who's coming back. The first time we had. Uh, Mr. Travis Stovall on our uh, podcast, he was running for mayor. And since then, uh, we found out that he won by a landslide in Gresham, Oregon. And uh, we are so happy to have you back, Mr. Mayor. Uh, thank you so much for coming back to the Choosing Conclusion podcast. <laughs> I can talk today. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, happy to be here, Mike and team. I, of course, that landslide was by 13 whole votes. Uh, so <laughs> it's kind of uh, joking when we say landslide because uh, 13 votes means every vote really does count. Well, and I think I, I would love to hear a little bit about that, that process, you know, um, because you were right in the middle of it. And obviously recounts and all this kind of stuff were a big part of this, you know, past presidential election. Um, I, what was your experience, particularly as a black person running for office? What was that experience like? Great question, UB. You know, I think we start with just the process. I mean, the process of running for a public office is interesting. I mean, there's an entire ecosystem that supports our political infrastructure. And it's fascinating. And, and I got to see it intimately. You know, we, we had to go through a period of time where all the votes had to be counted which uh, was a time period of roughly about two, uh, about two weeks. And then there's another time frame where the contested ballots uh, could, uh, could be counted. And that's a, pro that's, a, that's a further process that needs to go on. And then because the race was so close at 13 votes, we had to go through a recount. And that recount took another week. So the, but from uh, our election day of November 3rd to the actual time when I knew uh, was a month. Uh, so there was a lot of waiting and a lot of additional work, again, tapping the ecosystem and infrastructure in the U.S. election uh, system was just fascinating. And my experience with the recount, I got to actually see it in person. And I can tell you that uh, based on uh, what I saw, a highly credible process, phenomenal uh, checks and balances that exist, at least here in Oregon, that uh, thoroughly impressed me. And, you know, the journey uh, as, a, as, a, as a Black man going through this process was fascinating and interesting also, because there's a lot of balance that we have to go through as we're doing what we consider to be campaigning. You know, the campaigns uh, and those efforts, we want to be transparent. We want to be honest. We want to be forthright. And, and sometimes, you know, your opponents can use that against you if you're if you're honest and forthright. But that's that's the way I am, and that's the way I will continue to be. And uh, you know, frankly, when you're especially in our in our town, we've got roughly four to five percent of our population are African American. Uh, in Oregon, historically and currently, has a very low uh, black population uh, statewide. I believe that number sits currently around three uh, to four percent. So it's relatively small. And so to be able to be elected uh, into an uh, into a, a position as mayor, fourth largest city in the state, second largest city in the metropolitan area is absolutely an honor, uh, but it's also humbling uh, because now we're tasked with the balance of ensuring that we are moving social and uh, racial equity forward, but also considering the entire community. Uh, we've got, and once you include 
additional uh, minorities, people of color, BIPOC communities in the number we go, we go north of 30%, approaching just under 40% of the population here, which leaves 60% of dominant culture individuals in our community. And how do we make sure that while we're looking at the racial and social justice and equity question, we're also considering how do we balance the efforts, the plight, uh, the challenges that exist for all of our community members. And that's challenging. That's, that's not something that comes easy. You know, I think what's, what's interesting about when people think about politics are so focused on the federal level, right? Like what are the federal level changes, but the biggest impact happens at the local level. And I love the fact that you're talking about social equity um, in terms of what you can do as the mayor. Can you share with our audience some of the, the plans that you have for the city um, that you can actually do as, as the mayor? Well, Nina, that's a phenomenal question because ultimately, yeah, as you, as you, and, and there's a saying that all politics are local. Um, and so you just touched on that. And uh, at some point we would wish that we would not get into the, into the, pol the quote unquote politics of things and really do what's right you know, for for our cities, for our municipalities, uh, you know, those are, you know, that's that's the passion, that's the desire. Uh, but sometimes the politics gets in the way, the true politics gets in the way of being able to accomplish some of the things that we want to accomplish because of some of the parochial ideals that come to the conversation. Uh, to that end, you know, it's interesting. I was just having a conversation yesterday, uh, kind of on a national scale, about about poverty. And that's one of the passions that I have and always had. How do we how do we reduce poverty? How do we how do we give people the opportunity to go from poverty to prosperity? And with that being an underlying kind of focus, uh, you ask the right question. What can we do? We know that poverty exists on a significant percentage in the BIPOC minority community. So if we're going to crush poverty, we've got to make sure that we understand how to address some of those things. And so what can what can I do as, as mayor? Well, we know that the two most critical impediments for people achieving prosperity, the very first one is access to affordable childcare. The second one is transportation. I've got the, I had the opportunity to be on the TriMet board, which is our regional transit system here in Portland. Uh, the Portland metropolitan area. I was on that uh, board for nine years and had the opportunity to help that organization uh, get into great financial shape. But we also did some things. You talk about equity. One of the areas that we saw problems is that our, we, had, we had issues with what we call fare evasion. So if someone gets on one of our, one of our vehicles, on one of our light rail trains and they don't pay the fare and ultimately they get caught by uh, uh, one of our fare uh, inspectors. Well, we, we noticed that uh, in some of those harshest cases of discipline, many of those as a higher percentage were African-American males. And it was a criminal offense for fare evasion. So these individuals didn't pay $2.50 and eventually they've got, uh, they've got a criminal record. And we saw that as something that was incredibly damaging because you know that if you've, if you've got that criminal record, it gets more difficult to pull yourself from poverty to prosperity. And so we went to our legislature and got them to, and worked hard to work with the legislature, which they were absolutely open for. And we actually decriminalized fare evasion. There's still, there's still fines and penalties for fare evasion, but it does not become a criminal offense. So it's those types of things that we also need to be looking at. How do policies impact folks uh, that are BIPOC uh, and people of color in ways that we don't always know because we don't exist sometimes 
on the same scale, on the same level. The lived experience isn't there uh, to be able to see that intuitively. And you mentioned, uh, I think Mike mentioned the fact that uh, DEI or DEI are things that that uh, sometimes happen uh, at a, at a scale that doesn't really uh, doesn't really impact the way we want it to impact. And you know, in that case, I. I we don't, we don't want to exist in a space, a, pl a space in a place where DEI gets bolted onto the conversation. We want it to be intuitive. We want it to be natural and organic in the conversation. And when you have people who have lived experience, they can bring that naturally. I so love how you go from a, you know, like it's, it's, it's the four or five conversations nationally that at the local level that they still talk at the federal level. Um, you know, and it's, it's education, it's healthcare, it's transportation, it's, uh, uh, it's employment, like it's, you know, like these aren't like, there's no rocket surgery to what uh, people need, and especially marginalized communities. I'd love to hear, uh, if you don't mind, uh, talking a little bit about your strategy for affordable health, uh, I'm sorry, affordable childcare. So, you know, there's actually here in the Portland metro region, uh, the region just passed uh, just uh, last November, a uh, uh, some legislation that allows for uh, free free Head Start and uh, those types of programs, which I am a huge fan of. Uh, I got the opportunity to uh, go to Head Start when I was uh, four years old, um, and I believe it gave me a tremendous uh, jump on life and uh, education, which has benefited me until today uh, through today. So ultimately, that's one of the things we, we so that just passed. It's things like that. That will allow us to ultimately, I believe, uh, start to work with the population of individuals who struggle with being able to uh, access that affordable child care. Other things that we, I mean, we, if the moment we as a community take the opportunity to align our efforts better with our investments, we have a tremendous opportunity to have a positive impact overall. So you think about libraries, you think about the you know organizations like the Boys and Girls Club. We think about uh, community colleges and, and things like that. How do we leverage and align those efforts to get the best outcome, which helps us deliver you know uh, free or affordable childcare? Uh, and so, as we're looking at those things, I've already had some great conversations uh, with uh, folks here in leadership uh, at, at the school, you know, in the school districts at the community college. Um, and workforce training, all of these individuals, we've already had some initial conversations to start to focus our efforts on, you know, things like that, foundational things that then give these individuals the opportunities they've never had. I know a young mom who's single and has two children and she works uh, locally and makes about $18 an hour. Her, her child care is roughly $12 an hour. I mean, we, we instantly all can see the, the challenge that she's going to have to raise herself in poverty, to prosperity, um, and it's challenging. And of course, it's even more challenging in COVID uh, because now the children would have been in school, which would have alleviated some of that. And now they're, they're not at school, they're at home, uh, digitally taking education. And so we've gotta be aware of those challenges that exist for folks on that lower socioeconomic rung. I was going to, I'm glad you actually brought up uh, COVID mayor. I, I was, I was curious on, you know, again, you're taking on a leadership role during, you know, I mean, like to say it's unprecedented times, right? Uh, how, how, how is this, you know, 
adding to <laughs> your plate? Like, and I, I'd love to hear some, you know, some, some thoughts, some strategies that you're, uh, you're, you're, you're thinking about at this point in time because of, uh, you know, this digital pandemic time. So, you know, it's, it's amazing. We've, we've been able to, there's a lot of things that we've now been able to do uh, both privately and publicly uh, in regards to responding uh, to the challenges of the pandemic. Uh, and there are things that I think are going to change the fabric of how we do things going forward, you know, into perpetuity. Um, and so some of the, I mean, I think some of the strategies that we've now seen within, with the pandemic are actually going to be beneficial digitally as we go forward, especially uh, for inclusion because uh, transportation is another critical problem that we have for folks who are challenged socioeconomically or economically and the ability to actually help them uh, you know, move up through the digital distribution of opportunity is going to improve. Now, to that end, we've got to ensure that broadband is, is available. You know, how do we make sure, I mean, we, we, we have all of these things you know, that uh, kind of have the ability to to kind of cascade and domino and grow, um, you know, if we don't take care of them or if we don't supply the right resource. And what I mean by that is, is that, um, so, you know, children who are in households that don't have broadband capabilities are now falling behind the educational achievement curve. And so how do we make sure that we're thinking about these things uh, as we, as we further implement digital technology because of the pandemic, but we also do that because we can be more efficient and have a high level of distribution of educational opportunities, training, those type of things through digital inclusion opportunities. When we, when we do that, we've got to make sure that we've got that foundation in place for, for those who are most in need. Uh, so that's the thing. I mean, we've got to be thinking uh, kind of comprehensively about that, but I think it's all, it's the digital distribution of education and opportunities and work opportunities is going to be tremendous because so much of our historical uh, uh, employment opportunity has come through our zip code. The closer you are to a location where you can get a high paying job, the better off you are. But those those close in opportunities for for housing and, and, and home purchases are pretty significant in cost. Well, now, since we've got the digital distribution decentralization of workforces, I think we've got a we've got a more uh, a much better opportunity for again uh, inclusion through the digital distribution of all the things I just referenced. One of the things I, I wanted to um, touch so it's kind of taking this back a little bit to the national level, but because all of this that you're talking about really is it's amazing how it can apply to organizations, right, and and people trying to do this work, this diversity, equity, and inclusion work in their company. Um, but something you mentioned um, when we were talking about the presidential election, and, you know, because it's interesting, right? You look at the history of presidents and it's, you know, these, these white men from the, the dominant community in this country. Um, but I, I'd love your perspective on on that as it relates to President Biden and, and hopefully what we can see happen from a change perspective and how that might apply to, you know, sort of the same demographic that we see in organizations, right? The white male, older white men running all these, the majority of these companies, but, but where's the silver lining in that? Well, the silver lining starts, uh, I think there's a course of moral uh, ethical conversation to be had every single moment 
but there's also a financial uh, and economic, you know, component to everything that we just referenced. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's been tons of research that has actually identified that uh, companies and organizations that that have more diversity produce a higher earnings per share. Uh, this has been studied year over year, and it's always been the case. So it's not just an ethical, moral conversation that we need to be having, but it's also an economic conversation we need to be having. Furthermore, we also know, and I believe it was J.P. Morgan that did this research, we know that we've missed out on $16 trillion of GDP opportunity over the last 20 years because of deep discrimination. $16 trillion, I believe that's $800 billion annually over the last 20 years. That's tremendous. Think about if we had that into our economy, how would that lift many of the disadvantaged folks within our communities to a much higher level? They also found that over the next five years, we can add a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars back to our GDP annually over the next five years. It's a $5 trillion impact if we have the ability to crush discrimination, specifically racial discrimination in our country. So on a global scale, that's highly impactful uh, because of economic influence. Uh, so we have economic influence, and if we have economic influence, then we also have the ability to talk about democracy. And democracy is important as we've seen it in our country, and that's what's critical. If we don't have that economic influence, we don't have the ability to be at the forefront in leadership of looking at democracy as, you know, how we want to lead our country and how we feel it's very important to have individuals engaged in the conversation. And so that leads to the idea of, of, of President Biden and his opportunity, you know, being a dominant culture individual. And I truly believe that he has the ability and opportunity to uh, do some incredible things. And I think, um, you know, I think he has the ability to lessen some of the fears uh, that uh, folks bring you know, to the conversation, to the, to the various discussion. And I, I believe that um, he, if he does a great job of articulating what I just shared about the economic impact along with the social and the ethical and moral uh, positive impacts of, of crushing discrimination, we can go a long ways because ultimately that is the right thing to do on all of those components that I just referenced. And you know, I believe if he can do a great job of articulating the benefits to our country, we'll get some significant movement. Yeah, I love that. And I, and I think, you know, that translates directly to, you know, uh, the, the what organizations can do, but, but it also, you know, it, it also emphasizes the fact that it, it has to start with leadership, right? Any of these initiatives related to diversity and inclusion, there, there has to be a leadership taking control of that and making it a priority. Otherwise, it's just, you know, another check the box kind of thing that a few people are, are managing, but it never truly takes. Um, and, and so I think it's such a great example and such a great way to lead as we continue to see these conversations around inclusion and diversity take priority finally. You know, sadly it, it took what it took last year, but I, I do see us on this path um, of getting there, right? Like, you know, and really finally having these conversations. 
So absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it does take leadership. It takes leadership. And in the political space where a lot of this work happens, it takes what we call political will and then political capital. I mean, both of those things are required. And you mentioned leadership to effectively lead. Uh, you know, I think we've got to have the political capital and respect to be able to have folks allow us to lead them. If we don't have that, then we, we have very little progress uh, that we can move forward. Um, and so we've got to provide and we've got to establish that leadership at the same time, you know, folks, uh, folks want to be involved and engaged, which we absolutely want to have. But there's also the balance between what I consider to be authoritative decisions and consultative decisions and knowing the difference. Um, and sometimes, you know, as, as leaders, we're called to make authoritative decisions. And many times we are called to make consultative decisions where we are engaging individuals and folks into the conversation. And I think, um, I think some, sometimes some of that can get mixed up um, and there's some misunderstandings of what we're asking, uh, but it's, it's critical. I mean, it's, I think it's critical to have the, 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 the correct balance uh, as we talk about leadership. What does re leadership really look like? And it's just fascinating when you're, when you're going through the campaign, folks are asking you many times specifically, what are you going to accomplish? Um, well, at the same time, they're, at, they're, they're, they're asking, well, but we want to be included in the conversation. Um, so if I give you direct things that I'm going to do right now, even before I get into office, how do you get an opportunity to inform exactly what you feel like needs to be done? And so you've got this dichotomy that you're, you're struggling with of, okay, I want to be visionary, but at the same time, I want to listen, I want to engage, and folks are holding you accountable to, oh, you're going, you need to do this, or you need to do that, but we also have to combine the efforts that I just referenced in the consultative and the authoritative, so as community, we can get to the best outcome, so yeah, I mean, I, it's complex um, to manage and, and lean into, but we have to do it, and that's where the political will comes in. We've got to have the political will, the will to do the right thing. Well, I, this has been a freaking amazing conversation. It's so good to catch up with you and congratulations on everything. Um, hey, Ubaldo. Yeah, Mike. I, I've got, I've got one last question. Yeah. If that's all right. I got, I got to know how, how is your cycling going? Oh, what's, what's cycling? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, it's, it's a funny question that you asked Mike, cause just the other day, um, I walked, I walked by my, my, I have two, I have two bicycles. I've got a, a cyclocross and a, and a road bike. And I walked by them and I just shook my head because I was like, oh my goodness, I cannot wait uh, to get back on the bike. Uh, so I haven't, I actually haven't ridden uh, in months. Um, I, I, I kind of, I kind of thought so based on, uh, you know, running for office, uh, running a company, uh, you, you have this thing called a family, all those kind of things. Uh, but I know uh, last time you had you had described yourself to me, which I really appreciated. Again, and you and you said you're a, you know you're 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 more of a Clydesdale. So when you get up on the on the bike, right, you don't you don't look like all the other bikers out there. So I just I had to ask, Mr. Mayor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, I I can't wait to get back uh, get back on the bike. I literally am just longing uh, to get back out there and hit the road. Awesome. Well, I, I think I had told you I have family in uh, Vancouver, Washington. So we we fly into uh, that area uh, quite often. And when I do, uh, hopefully you uh, you have 15 minutes to uh, to have a cup of coffee with me, my friend. And uh, really so, so, so happy for you. I really am, Mr. Mayor. Absolutely. Well, yeah. If you're ever out here, Mike, don't hesitate to let me know. We'd love to 
love to grab that cup of coffee. Um, of course, sadly enough, my favorite, one of my favorite coffee shops uh, didn't make it through uh, the pandemic, but I'm sure I will be able to find uh, another place that uh, can, can measure up. So uh, yeah, when, whenever you head off this direction, we'll absolutely get, grab that cup of coffee. Awesome. Well, we, we might all take you up on that, actually. <laughs> Excellent. Come on. Uh, that would be wonderful. It'd be great to see you. Well, yeah, thank you again. Um, amazing conversation. And, you know, as always, Mike, Nina, thank you. And thank you, the Choose Inclusion audience. Check us out on chooseinclusion.com. Um, and there's a bunch of streaming sites that, that we're a part of. So thank you all very much and uh, take care. Thanks, everybody. Bye, everyone.